can you give away any secrets of, of your theory of, of scaring people? The psycho shower scene made many women afraid to take a shower in a house where they were alone for years, some to this day. Well, I had um, a letter from a man who said that uh, my daughter, after she saw the French film Diabolique, would never take a tub anymore because they had a scene with a man coming out of a tub and taking his eyes out. Some horror scene. Yeah. He said, and after seeing that, she'd never take a tub. Now, having seen Psycho, she won't take a shower. <laughs> As a result, she's very unpleasant to be around. <laughs> so I replied, I said, dear sir, <laughs> send her to the dry cleaners. <laughs> Lucky you! Best 36 holes in golf. You tuned in to Alternate Shots Podcast. Arnie's Army. Where we talk about golf. Barkies, Sandys. Poker. Bond. James Bond. Horse racing. I'm all in. Great movies. Alfred Hitchcock. We have no script. And down the stretch they come. We're glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start again. What sort of a childhood did you have? Were you interested in movies way back? Not really. Not interested in them now, actually. It's a way of making a living. It was about 1916. I was at college going, taking a course in mechanical engineering back at Cornell University in New York. And this, I took a job at the studio to earn, earn money during summer vacation. And it just happened that Doug Fairbanks was making a picture in the East, and he wanted a modern setting. And I'd had about seven years of architecture. The man who did all the sets and did that kind of stuff was down in Arizona, and they didn't know what to do, and I said, I can draw, get him a set. Ignorance, there's no authority in the world like it. But, but there's, there's, there's got to be something more than that technically. I mean, how did you know that... You know technically that the whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. Okay. I kid you not. Mr. Hitchcock, why do you always make mystery films? Life is a big mystery, isn't it? It always has been. I think people are intrigued by mystery to find out about things they don't know anything about. That's a mystery. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Oh, 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 well, at least we have the laugh to add at the end. Right. We're, we've gone from 12 handicaps at this to 19 handicaps in just a week. <laughs> that, that's what happened. Somebody changed my grip, and the next thing you know, I can't do the podcast anymore. I felt like I was in the first row of the uh, first pew at church right during the sermon. <laughs> and your brother was poking my you. Brother, my brother was making me laugh. Thanks for joining Billy us Casper, today. Billy Horner. We really appreciate your Double feedback. Indemnity. And please Marky. subscribe to Two the show. Hit them hard. Job. And hit them off. That's 36 holes. It was about 1916. I was at college, going, taking a course in mechanical engineering back at Cornell University in New York. 
And this was, I took a job at the studio to earn, earn money during summer vacation. And it just happened that Doug Fairbanks was making a picture in the East, and he wanted a modern setting. And I'd had about seven years of architecture. The man who did all the sets and did that kind of stuff was down in Arizona, and they didn't know what to do. And I said, I can draw, get him a set. So I made the set, and Doug came back, and he looked at it, and he said, this is just what I wanted. Who, who the hell did this? And they introduced me to him. And he looked at me, and he said, you look like you might be a pretty good athlete. I said, I am. What do you do? And I said, well, I'm a four handicap at golf, and I was junior champion playing tennis. And Oh, hell, he said, come on out and play with me this next weekend. We became good friends. And he was going through a, the courtship stage with Mary Pickford. And he said to Mary, why don't you put Howard in as your real property man? She said, okay. And I did a couple of things that she liked, so she made me her assistant director. And one day the director got drunk and she said, I guess we can't work any. I said, why, why don't we make some scenes? And she said, can you do it? And I said, sure. And we made some scenes and she was very pleased with them. And that was my start as a director. Mr. Hitchcock, why do you always make mystery films? Well, life is a big mystery, isn't it? It always has been. I think people are intrigued by mystery to find out about things they don't know anything about. That's a mystery. But surely not as sensational as you make it seem. Uh, life is more sensational. I would say that, uh, uh, how does one describe drama? Drama is life with the dull bits cut out. Do you regard the mystery, the form of mystery, uh, in a film, as a kind of escape for yourself in any way? An escape possibly from your own fears? Well, it might have started that way. I suppose it must have all started when I was in my mother's arms at the age of six months. And she said to me, boo! <laughs> and scared the something out of me, you know. Can you remember any specific instance when you were frightened as a child? Well, I have a vague recollection of being scared by a policeman. I think that uh, when I was probably about four or five years of age, being sent with a note to the local police station and being shut in a cell as a punishment for some mishap or... Um, I don't, I think, uh, I don't even know what, what it was for. I was probably unjustly incarcerated at the time. But you see, the psychiatrist will always tell you, if you have a fear root, uh, that is rooted in you and comes from something in your childhood, the moment you can go back to it and release it, all is well. It doesn't apply to me. I'm still scared of policemen. Would you say you were a very 
and he a very timid man utterly timid i'm scared of everything is there one rule above all others which is indispensable to a director who wants to frighten an audience i think he should understand the psychology of audiences he should also know that audiences love to enjoy the very thing that they have built in and that's fear uh, that all started when the mother said boo but for some inexplicable reason they like to how shall i say put their toe in the cold water of fear to see what it's like that's why they go for rides on switchbacks and scream and scream and and then get off giggling little little girls go on swings they go higher and higher and suddenly when they get too high they get scared and come down again they're all trying it out your new film is called psycho mm -hmm. can you tell me something about it well psycho is my first attempt at a shocker in other words it has in its content certain episodes which do shock in some sense it could be called a horror film but the horror only comes to you after you've seen it when you get home in the dark but can you be more specific is it about a particular kind oh of well the, the rather broad idea is a, a young man played by anthony perkins who runs a small motel, about a 12-unit, a rather cheesy affair, really. And in an old house behind the motel uh, is his mother. And she, I'm afraid, is homicidal. He should put her away, but he loves her too much. So you can imagine what happens to the guests at the motel. You once told me that actors were cattle to be shoved about. I wonder if you care to enlarge on that. You mean you want to make them larger cattle than they are? No, no. Well, uh, I don't, that's really a joke. But um, they're children, you know, and uh, uh, invariably the problem one always has with actors is uh, coping with their ego. But they have to have the ego and they have to be uh, ultra-sensitive, otherwise they wouldn't be able to do what, the, what the, uh, is asked of them. You invariably appear in your own films, Mr. Hitchcock. Have you ever been tempted to become an actor yourself? Nothing so low as that. I've always wanted to know the answer to this. The, the, you always hear that when you were 26 years old and you made Citizen Kane, uh, and they said, you can't do th these things, you can't have the background in focus or whatever it was, or you can't shoot a scene that way, Mr. Wells, or young Mr. Wells, or Orson, or whatever they called you then. And you knew that you could, and how did you know this? Uh, because I didn't know any better, and it's very much in the line with what Jack was saying earlier in the show. It comes from, from just, uh, you know, sheer dumbness. You, you're sure it's got to be your good and your great. It's ignorance. There's no authority in the world like it. But, but there's, there's, there's got to be something more than that technically. I mean, how did you know that... You know technically that the whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. Okay. I kid you not. Now, how, how does it work? How do you do it? You get a guy who knows and how to... And then ask him, and that's the end of it. It isn't yeah. much harder than taking uh, 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 home movies. It's just about three points harder. Mm -hmm. And all these guys who do it try to make a big mystery of it because that's the, their living. And I have the right to say it because I had in my first picture in Kane the greatest cameraman who ever lived, who was Greg Toland. And he came to my office and said, I want to work in your picture. My name is Toland. And I said, why do you, Mr. Toland? He said, because you've never made a picture. 
And you don't know what cannot be done. And so I said, but I really don't. Can you tell me? He says, there's nothing to it. And he gave me the day and a half lessons. And he was right. Showed you how the camera worked. That's right. Nothing to do. And uh, so we had the day and a half, and there it was. But the only thing was, I'd been directing in the theater for years, and I, nowadays they have lighting people. We did then, and I had some, some of the greatest lighting people, in fact, in the theater, but many of the shows I lit myself, and I was supervised it, and I thought a director did that in a movie. So for the first 10 days, I was moving the lights around, you see. And uh, Toland was behind me, fixing it up and changing the readings and saying, shut up, let him go on. I want to see what he's up to which was very chic of him, I think. And then somebody, somebody told me, and then I went and got on my knees and apologized and everything. I thought that's what the directors did. Mm-hmm. Because if you see a picture by Ford, for example, you were speaking of Jack Ford earlier. He's had, what, uh, must be in a hundred cameramen in his long career. And almost every Ford picture, you can tell from the look of it. That it's a... A Ford picture, yeah. just from the physical look yeah. of it. His, his signature is on it, you know. Now, when every, every list of great films, of course, many of them lead with Citizen Kane and, and say it's the, it's the finest film made. Um, do you agree? No, certainly not. That's My next one is, though. That's the... the Magnificent Ambassador. No, the next, no not, the, not the one after that, the one I'm preparing at this moment. Oh, oh the next one. That's, next one. that's going to make history. Could you give us the title of that? I haven't decided what it is yet. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Now, could I just check one other thing with you? Is it true that the, the Hearsts tried to actually have the film destroyed before it was... They tried filmed? to have it destroyed. They even tried to frame me. One, why in one town, I was doing a, some kind of date, I don't know what, bond tour, lecture, some kind of a, a gig, and I was a, a, in a nightclub afterwards, mm-hmm. waiting to go back to my hotel, have a little supper, and the waiter came up and says, There's a police officer wants to see you. Well, I tried to hide, because if that ever happens... I'm sure I'm guilty. I don't know how you are about it, but, you know. Absolutely. And then I see a cop, I know I did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was no way out of it. I had to go see him, and he took me aside, and he said, uh, Orston, I don't know why they always call me Orston. He says, um, don't go back to your hotel room. Yeah. And I said, why? He says, they've got a miner staked out there and a photographer. Lady? Uh, in, uh, luckily, a lady, I think. I, I prefer to tell it that way. Oh, no, I meant, I meant ER as opposed to OR. I'm sorry. sorry. And uh, they were going to frame me. I would have been in jail yeah. if the, you know, were the cops waiting to jump in and arrest me. That was not Mr. Hurst itself. It was somebody in that town who thought he'd get in good with... A gig, and I was uh, in a nightclub afterwards. Thank you. Now, could I just check one other thing with you? Is it true that the, the Hearsts tried to actually have the film destroyed before it was... They tried filmed? to have it destroyed. They even tried to frame me. One, one, in one town, I was doing a, some kind of date. I don't know what, bond tour, lecture, some kind of a, a gig. And I was a, a, in a nightclub afterwards, mm-hmm. waiting to go back to my hotel, have a little supper. And waiter came up and says, There's a police officer wants to see you. Well, I tried to hide because if that ever happens... I'm sure I'm guilty. I don't know how you are about it, but, you know. Absolutely. And then I see a cop, I know I did it. (laughs) There was no way out of it. I had to go see him, and he took me aside, and he said, uh, Orston, I don't know why they always call me Orston. He says, uh, don't go back to your hotel room. Yeah. 
I said, why? He says, they've got a miner staked out there and a photographer. A lady? Uh, in, uh, luckily, a lady, I think. I, I prefer to tell it that way. Oh, no, no, I meant, I meant ER as opposed to OR. I'm sorry. sorry. And uh, they were going to frame me. I would have been in jail yeah. if the, you know, with the cops waiting to jump in and arrest me. That was not Mr. Hurst itself. It was somebody in that town who thought he'd get in good with the boss by doing a favor. By do, doing a favor. Yeah. I don't think Hurst would have stooped to that. Would you change? Although I did have a conversation with him about about the picture, yeah. which was in an elevator in San Francisco the night it opened. I, we found ourselves going up together. And he'd known my father. I'd never met him, you know. And I introduced myself. Things you'll do when you're young, you know. <laughs> and I said, uh, would you like to come to the opening tonight? And he didn't answer. And I said, well, Mr. Kane would have come. And that's the difference between the two people, because the character of Charles Foster Kane had enough class mm -hmm. to have gone to the opening. But he just, yeah. uh, he was very uptight, that was the end of that. It wasn't really about him, it was made up of a lot of people, that's what, the truth. What's the last time you saw it? I, I saw it, the, the, that, that opening in San Francisco, and I snuck out right after it started. I've never seen a picture of mine after I finished it. You haven't seen Citizen Kane in all these years? No picture I've ever made, except as an actor, but never seen a picture I've directed. Only once? Yeah, well, what? a thousand times in the cutting room. Yeah, but wh why wouldn't you want to sit now? Because and see I it? like to sit here and think how good it must have been. You know. <laughs> <laughs> is there ever is there any chance that you would change any of it or do any of it again? Of course, everything you'd want to change, everything I think. You know, Gosh. don't you want to change things after you've done them? And a movie can't be changed. No, that was the yeah. whole thing. I just. Uh, and I like to think, oh, yes, and all those great pictures, and I know if I saw them, that all confidence would go. Certainly, as, uh, as Churchill or Roosevelt or George Marshall, and I suppose Marshall is the greatest man I ever met. Really? Yes, I would think so. What, what would you admire what, about him above everybody else? human being mm -hmm. i think he's the he's the greatest human being who was also a great man of course i was immensely impressed with churchill and sure. and, uh, uh, and but but he was quite another thing you know he was uh, he had great humor and great irony he went to see me when i played othello on the stage in london mm -hmm. and i heard a low murmuring in the front row I thought he was talking to himself. And then he came backstage afterwards and sat down in the dressing room and said, Most potent, grave, and reverend seniors, my most approved good masters, and began the whole of Othello's part, which he had memorized, and uh, <laughs> including the cuts which I had made, <laughs> which he read with a good deal of extra emphasis. Mm -hmm. And then uh, <laughs> a few... Years afterwards, I happened to be in Venice trying to get some money for a movie during the festival, and poor Churchill had been, right after the war, as you know, crest of the greatest victory that any single man had ever presided over in modern history was voted out of office. Quite properly, probably, but it was a tragic blow for him, and there he was in the hotel uh, at the Lido with uh, Clemmy, his wife, alone. And he'd go swimming out on the beach, and 
One day at lunch, I came in with a Russian businessman. I was trying to hustle for some money for this picture. <laughs> and as we passed Mr. Churchill's table, Mr. Churchill saw me and made that little gesture. And the Russian went out of his mind. This is a white Russian, not a red Russian. This is a, this is a you know, a hustling semi-Armenian Russian. <laughs> and... Uh, when he saw that Mr. Churchill not only knew me, but gave a rather special acknowledgement, it was clear to me that I had the money for my picture. <laughs> so the next morning I was out swimming in the beach and I, and I found myself paddling in the water right next to Mr. Churchill. And I hadn't gone up to speak to him, but there we were in the water and uh, I had known him on and off during the war in a humble capacity and I said, uh, uh, Mr. S and he had come backstage to see me, and I said, Mr. Churchill, I think you ought to know what you did for me. And I told him about how this acknowledgement had meant so much to me with my financier. Mm -hmm. And that day at lunch, I came in with the financier again, and Mr. Churchill rose from his chair and bowed. <laughs> Working for John Ford uh, on the man who shot Liberty Valance and, and then later Donovan's Reef, uh, you know, so just so much has been written about the man, and uh, I think some of, some of it seems to paint him as this simple kind of Irishman, but in reality, he was really a very complex uh, person. He was an intellect, um, tough Irish intellect. I don't think there can be anything worse than that. Um, in other words, he has all the demons in him, the Irish demons. And he's also intelligent. And uh, when the script is written, etc., if there was ever a difficult scene, he'd always shoot it at the end of the day. <clears throat> so uh, he'd break for tea about four. And he'd say, all right, now we're going to do this scene. And so, you know, walk through it, put the marks down. <clears throat> and go for the first take. Now we're all set and all juiced and ready to go, right? And he'd look at his watch and say, all right, that's the wrap, first shot in the morning. Now you leave the set like this, you're wired. And all night long you're saying, hey, geez, I was ready to go. I mean, why did I have to live with this like this? And say, was I? Then you start to criticize yourself in the scene. You say, oh my God, I would have done that. Oh, it's wrong. Mm. So now you come to work the next morning knowing how you're going to change what you're doing. And you see that the set has all changed. All the marks are up, the camera's gone, everything. You say, all right, now let's uh, run that scene again. Totally different and right. In other words, he'd let you sweat it for a night and he'd sweat it for a night. And you do it in the morning. I mean, that's how, how bright he was about things like that. Uh, Bill Claudier told me in an interview that he had tried to talk Ford into shooting Liberty Valance in color. And then he felt the black and white was was wrong, it was dated, whatever. But then when he was actually seeing the dailies and seeing the, the mood of the piece, that there was no other way but to shoot it in black and white. Well, black and white saves you a lot of problems. Uh, it takes you back into the, into the mystical past. I mean, for instance, there's so many films you see today that'd be better in black and white. Except the distributors won't handle them. They say our audiences want color. So if you have a night scene in a dark alley in color, it really doesn't amount to much. If you did it in black and white like in the old days, they could do with shadows. 
It'd be much more dramatic. I mean, look at the, look at the Joan Crawford films. The critiques, the way he yeah, used the, the gee, these bars of light and the moods and the beauty. I mean, it was, for some reason, I don't know how to put this here, for some reason it allowed you to experience it in its purity. Whereas in color, it allows you to tear it apart. Because if there's a red rose in the corner, it's going to be just as red, because they're going to light it. Having nothing to do with the scene, and your eye goes, I think it blows up. <clears throat> Working with John Wayne, uh, I did the Comancheros and uh, Liberty Valance, Diamonds Reef. be a filmmaker than anything else that I know. Why are comedy and western your favorite movie genre? Well, because uh, in a western you get outside, out in the desert, out in the uh, outdoors, and it's very pleasant to work, and also I enjoy working with John Wayne, and John Wayne has been in all the westerns that I've made. And we like each other, and it's very easy to work with him. He just says, what do I do? I tell him, and he never says one word. He just does it. Well, John Wayne is the greatest Western star that we have. And Cary Grant is the best comedian. So that I, in making comedies, I've only used Cary Grant, and I make it easy for myself. And actresses? Actresses... I am not very fond of using established actresses. They like just the left side of their face photographed, and that's too much trouble. So I always put new actresses. If I can, I find a new actress and put them in the picture to work with the men who are so good, and they help her, and, and in that way I found quite a number of stars, like Carol Lombard, Rita Hayworth, Angie Dickinson, Lauren Bacall, all of them were just made their first picture with me. Well, Marilyn Monroe was a very a personality. She was not a great actress at all. She was really a frightened little girl who never thought that she was good enough to uh, to do what she did. I think that the best of my generation are uh, Capra and uh, Stevens, Leo McCary, and a man that I have a great admiration for is Jack Ford. He's influenced very, me very much in the making of pictures. I steal from him and he steals from me. And we're very good friends. I know a few French directors like Truffaut and people like that that I've admired and liked their work. I uh, know a couple of Italian directors that I thought did a good job.
I haven't seen very many pictures from other countries because they, uh, they don't have them over in America. I think cinema is entertainment, and I don't like the sick stories. I don't like them at all. Well, I like violence if the story calls for violence. I don't like violence as the picture, the wild bunch or something like that, where they just use buckets of blood all over. I don't like that kind of violence. I like to kill them very quickly and then it's finished. I decided that people did not like the Vietnam War and there was no reason to make a picture about something that people didn't like. So anybody who wants to buy a good scenario can buy it from me now. I wouldn't say that I'm a religious man. I am not anti-religious, but I am, I am not uh, uh, very, very religious. I'm not interested in making arguments. I have no place. Mr. Ford, I'm, I'll probably get the pronunciation wrong, but I believe your real name is Sean O'Feen, is it, or Fine? How, how Irish are you? Are you 100% Irish? Oh, essentially that. O'Fenner. Sean O'Fenner. When did you come to America? I was born here. What sort of a childhood did you have? Were you interested in movies way back? Not really. Not interested in them now, actually. It's a way of making a living. No, uh... Oh, I don't know. Occasionally you go to movies and, uh... I was not particular. I wasn't what you call an aficionado or anything like that. I suspect that a lot of your scripts are very improvised and I believe that one of the arch exponents of this was Will Rogers. Can you tell me about him? Well, you make a statement and ask a, ask a question. A lot of my scripts are improvised. Exactly what do you mean by that? That you start with basic material and then work around it. Well, I think any good director would do that. I mean, a script is a skeleton that you work on. If it's a good script, you do it, I mean, verbatim. But how often do you get a script that you can do verbatim? I mean, I remember once upon a time, I mean, the so-called producer and the writer was a very dear friend of mine. He says, this is the greatest script I've ever written. He says, Jack, I want you to promise me now that you'll do this word for word. As I solemnly swear, I will do it word for word. So I did this script did this picture. We only went five weeks over schedule. And it came out when the final first cut was 18 reels. How did you first strike up your lifelong association with John Wayne? Well, number one is not lifelong. Uh, I've known Duke about 
Duke, as we call him, about 30 years. He was my third assistant prop man. Then he became the second prop man. He finally worked himself up to prop man. And we started to do stagecoach, and uh, oh, everybody turned it down. I had to peddle it around. And finally, Walter Wanger, you know, he says, well, you got a picture? He says, you know, said, what, the Western He says, well, go ahead and do it. He says, who do you want to use for a lead? I says, I've got a kid here. He's uh, just out of college. I've used him in several bits, and he's very good. Big, tall, handsome guy. And I'd like to make a test of him, uh, test of him uh, show it to you. He said, well, if you say he's okay, oh, okay, and you, I'll make the test. So I made a test, and he says, yeah, he says, go ahead, great. So Walter went off to Europe, and we made the picture with Duke, and that sort of started him off. But uh, we've always been very friendly, and uh, I'm the godfather of all, of all of his children, and he has many, and his grandchildren, of which he has more, so, we're very close. I'm afraid you're going to hate this question, but I, I do want to ask you about courage. Would you say that courage was something that one acquired or something that one was born with? Well, how do you expect me to answer that? Because your work, your films, are full of courageous people. Your activities in the war are full of courage. And you've chronicled some of the most historically courageous incidents in history. You do seem to be interested in courage. I don't know. I've tried to figure out. I am a... I am really a coward. I know I am. So that's why I did foolish things. And I was decorated eight or nine times. Trying to prove that I was not a coward. But after it's all over, I still knew that I still know that I was a coward. I've always found out the little quiet little man that nobody pays any attention to usually has more guts. Can you use guts in BBC? Hmm? Sure. Has more guts and courage than the big blowhard, the big noisy, you know, the big outspoken fellow. It's a little man that does the crazy.